Greetings. I'm Raman Chada, founder of the Junto Institute. Welcome to Flourishing Together, where we have inspiring conversations with people who are becoming infinitely better at who they are and what they do. Today's episode coincidentally features two accomplished sales professionals who epitomize the spirit of the Junto Institute because of their human side. Each has built a successful career, but more importantly, they live a life of integrity, responsibility, and service. We're going to start with Vera Kimi, one of our alumni. Vera is currently VP of Sales with Forte Group, which graduated from the Junto Institute in 2014. She has a fascinating story as a young woman who left Russia and came to the United States. It's one of those classic, inspiring immigrant stories, which I hope that you'll appreciate. She's a self-directed, highly independent woman with a gentle spirit. Uh, She's a highly attentive listener, which I've always appreciated. And as you'll hear, um, has a thoughtful, adventurous soul. She's been an active alumnus for us for many years, and this year uh, became a Junto mentor and also one of our facilitators for Junto Women, for which she's become a passionate advocate. I want to welcome you warmly, Vera, to Flourishing Together. Good to see you, Raman. So uh, we are going to start with the emotion wheel, which you're very familiar with, and I uh, would love to hear how you're feeling on this lovely Friday. Raman, I must say that I love emotion will, but at the same time, I am not quite skilled at using it because emotions change uh, every, I mean, every minute of the day. And uh, one of the experiences that I had connecting with my emotion was when I took um, black box acting class. And you have to say in the moment what it is that you feel. And you have to be very true to the emotion that you experience because this is what's building you up as, well, I didn't mean to be an actor, but I wanted to acquire that skill set. So it just connects you to your true self and allows you to express it better. And uh, I stopped black box acting a while ago, and I feel that I am less connected to my emotions Mm. now. And I'm um, alum and haven't been. I uh, haven't really been connected to this wheel, despite the fact that I'm a mentor and uh, um, women leadership circle facilitator. So I'm a little bit nervous and insecure to a, admit this, but also uh, very optimistic, eager, and um, enthusiastic about today's experience. Um, I got to tell you, like I am, man, I'm feeling a ton of yellow, green, uh, love and joy. Um, I've had a really good week. Mm-hmm. It might be one of the best weeks in my life from like literally Monday morning, first thing to right now. And I don't expect it to change because after this, I've got a meeting with another one of our alumni for another reason. Um, who actually somebody who, whose, uh, episode just published Aaron Fajalak from designation or, uh, who used to be. So anyway, I've had just an incredible week. So I'm feeling a ton of uh, sentimental nostalgia, as you might imagine, because uh, Catherine was here this week. Um, very uh, jubilant, euphoric, excited, optimistic, content, peaceful, playful, a lot of stuff there. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. Um, like we typically start, uh, we're going to begin with the first recollection that you have of leadership. 
So you shared this question with me in advance, and this is the one that really sent me down the memory lane. Because the first means you have to dive into, you know, your childhood and all of those memories. And um, one of the instances which is, like, in a way painful is uh, um, an experience that I had with uh, my dad and mom. So I grew up in Russia. Everybody is equally poor. And uh, my dad is a high-ranking officer. And uh, he has many soldiers under his command. And a lot of people in his position uses soldiers to do things for themselves. Um, I mean, it's unethical, but, uh, you know, they build your dachas, which is uh, summer homes, and uh, they may do some heavy lifting of uh, whatever it is that you want them to carry. So soldiers get abused, right? And uh, my mom is complaining to my dad, saying that we are not benefiting by your position, and we are not benefiting by my dad's position. And although it really sucks to be poor, even in a country where everybody's equally poor, I remember thinking that it probably is not very nice to be better off when somebody is worse off because of you're better off. I know my dad is somebody who's always taken the high road. I think that this is the expression. And uh, now that I am taking similar choices in life, mm -hmm. I appreciate that he didn't abuse his power. That's inspiring. So let's stay on this track here mm -hmm. because um, you've shared with me in the past a little bit of the story of you coming to the U.S. So I'd like you to, to do that briefly. and enough detail to be able to then lead into how that transition from one part of the world to another and to very different parts of the world, not just geographically, but in so many other ways, how that transition in your life, looking back, has shaped you as both a human and a leader. So that's another memory lane question. Um, I, I feel like I kept on moving west because I grew up in Kamchatka and I left my quote-unquote um, homeland when I was 14 years old. And uh, I lived in a city uh, close to Moscow. I mean, not close at all, but it's continental Russia. And I graduated from college there. And then when I was 20, I took a trip to U.S. and that was my second trip. And that trip was not with, with an intention to stay, but rather to explore. And uh, no, I didn't come here by boat. I came on a plane and uh, I came through New York or Boston. There were two times that I arrived, so I don't remember which, which one is which. And uh, U.S. is, I don't know what I would do without this country. Because as I was exiting Russia, uh, these are like late 90s, right? It's a very pessimistic, dark place. There's no opportunity. I feel like everything and everything and everyone are depressed. And uh, just looking back, I don't know how I would have survived there. And there's just this very heavy feeling of, 
in order for you to accomplish anything, you have to make choices uh, which are not going to be ethical. So I come to U.S. and uh, somehow the energy is very different. And uh, it may be cliche, but I embrace the land of opportunity notion of the U.S. I met amazing people along the way. And I feel that here I was always greeted by people who would either help or direct or provide shelter or employment. And uh, that really allowed me to elevate, I think, and just become a stronger me, uh, a happier me. And uh, because I didn't come here as um, part of a family, I didn't come here um, on, you know, an immigration visa that um, sponsors you to do a specific work. Um, I came here as a, a student. I had very diverse experiences. Um, I met a lot of people of, um, you know, very different um, economic and um, social uh, backgrounds. Um, I lived in different states. And uh, that diversity, I think, also shaped me who I am. Um, when I came to U.S., I graduated with a degree, but I didn't really have, like, a direction in life, so to say. I didn't I didn't have a career per se, right? So I tried a lot of things. Um, whatever whatever it was in front of me, I would take it. So I was in hospitality. I worked in uh, like dental office. Um, I serviced NASCAR races. Hmm. I um, uh, worked in a hospital as a coordinator. Like I took whatever opportunity would come and I... Uh, I truly just enjoyed the experience of having it. And now looking back, I'm very grateful that it it was tough not having, you know, your language around you or people who you know. But at the same time, that allowed me to just open up to the world and uh, take it in closer. And um, because the world was very given and uh, embraced me, back, or I don't know who embraced whom first, I feel that now um, that is a direct line to where I am right now. I want to give, I want to give forward, and uh, I take it as uh, like my life philosophy to keep uh, open doors, um, like I welcome people in my home, and I always think about how can I create better opportunity for you, whoever is in front of me. So... I've known you for six years, I think, and in all that time, uh, you have been in some way, shape, or form involved in sales, sometimes less so, sometimes much more so. And I say that with a little bit of emphasis and focus because just even based on what you've said so far and how you've said it, just the demeanor that you have and the way in which you deliver your words you don't come across at all like someone who might be in sales. And I know that behind what I just shared is paradigms and stereotypes and so on. And what's really cool is you've been pretty damn successful with your sales career based on my perception, mm -hmm. based on what I know about the company, right? Because mm -hmm. as, as you guys uh, are a Junto alumnus company. So 
what I'd like you to do is not necessarily talk about that, but uh, the, the sales career. More what I'm doing is setting up this thing that you've shared with me a couple of times, which I imagine you've shared with many others, which is how your successful sales career actually enables other parts of your life where you fuel your passion and where your passions are fueled. Um, so I'd like you to share more about that. So uh, th that's funny uh, that you say that. Um, I struggle with it a little bit because uh, I don't look at myself as uh, somebody who is the best suited person for this job. And um, again, like based on where I'm coming from, uh, education-wise and um, just my uh, history, it wasn't something that was my dream job, so to say. I didn't have a dream job. And uh, it's not uh, something that I thought that I would like to achieve. Um, again, I arrived into where I am with uh, Forte Group now completely by just being open to what is next and uh, what wants to happen in order for the company that I help build and really love to be, you know, next itself, right? So I'm gonna go back to Russia for a little mm -hmm. uh, for a little moment. Sales didn't have good rep. Um, again, like dark nineties, um, everybody's trying to trick you into something. So, uh, sales means somebody is going to add like salt to your flour or I don't know, like there is just a lot of trickery. Mm -hmm. And, um, as I come to us, first of all, it's selling of myself. Like my first job, I literally had to walk door to door and say, would you like to hire me? Right. And uh, that is an exercise in sales. And I don't remember being scared about it. Mm -hmm. I just knew that I need a job and uh, I'm going to walk on you know, this road and knock at any door. And um, eventually I got hired um, and met a lot of wonderful people at that restaurant. Um, probably got a little fat too. It was Italian. So in Junto, we practice habits. I mean, Without habits, our life would be very difficult. I think with sales, I had to practice something which is very unfamiliar to me. Like not running away when you hear no. And now many years later, like no for me is a conversation starter. Like this is where negotiation begins. Hearing objections, you know, like 10 years back or more was terrifying. And now objections again is a beginning of a creative process. So everything changed probably 180 degrees mm. from like where it started. And the reason why I, am, why I am in sales is mostly because this is uh, something that I think is most impactful for the organization. So I do not differentiate between, I think, parts of my life. This is all my life. My work uh, my hobbies, my friends, my family, like all of this is just one big one, one whole, and everything is very interconnected. So I oftentimes bring people who I know into my work and uh, vice versa. I bring my work to my friends. And um, it's, I think that these parts are very nourishing to one another. And maybe because I was in entrepreneurial world for most part of my life what happens 
like work doesn't end at five o'clock. Like there is constantly something processing on the background, but it also allows me to think about other things while I am at work. Um, and I think that these two parts are really enriching one another. So for example, my hobby is uh, being good for my career. Like I love theater. And therefore, I took the black box mm -hmm. uh, acting classes or like the second uh, city uh, stand-up uh, improv. Um, like this is something that um, improves my, you know, ability to connect to people and uh, vice versa. Like my uh, sales habits, I guess, enable me to be a better friend to my friends mm -hmm. who not necessarily know how to speak up for themselves. Like I really think that without um, without sales function, product or service does not exist. So that's important to me. And uh, I I don't sell ice to Eskimos. Um, I really sell something that will make an impact in other people's lives. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, that's easy thing to do, right? Like I know I am creating better outcomes for companies and for people because of what I do. So you are without question, one of our biggest advocates out of all of our alumni. And you've shared with me and with a handful of other people, uh, some of the growth and, and development that you've experienced over the years. What specifically have you worked on, uh, on yourself and, and what has changed about you during this journey? So that's been a long journey, first mm -hmm. of, and um, when I reflected on this question, I thought that the biggest change, and uh, it became a habit, is I stopped believing in first impressions. It's just, it just gone. I think that there is a bridge to everyone who you encounter. And that's really, that really is amazing. Like there's no person that you cannot build something with. So that's, that's big. The listening habit uh, from Junto, I mean, I think I'm just going to repeat uh, what a lot of people said has been a lifesaver. Um, I think that um, benefited me a lot. And um, ultimately, so there's a philosophy that I have. We have everything within us already. Like you have everything of uh, life and universe coded in you. And um, through interactions and through like certain protocols of interactions that I learned um, and carried from Junto, I chisel the version of myself that I want to be. So that's... Uh, that's something that probably requires daily practice, um, and that's the biggest takeaway. I'm a better friend because of habits that I acquired and practiced. And then in terms of uh, what else I got out of Junto, uh, like a habit of reaching out for help and seeking mentorship and coaching, but also like giving it to other people. And then um, a small anecdote, again, I got a lot um, of friends and connections and ideas out of Junto and like book recommendations, but I also got a dating coach and, uh, you know, a person who I hopefully will marry in 2020. 
um, again, as part of a Junto journey. That's right. I always forget about that. Yeah, I think it's a funny fact. <laughs> it is. What are you working on right now? Actually, you helped me work on it, or Junta Women helped me work on it. I noticed that I'm um, good in one-on-one, one-on-two, one-on-three interactions, and that I am shy because I'm naturally introverted uh, with groups of you know four and more. So when you offered um, to join Junta Women, I kind of leaned into the sphere of, um, you know, like large gatherings. Um, And although it's still uncomfortable, I kind of keep at it uh, because I'm working at at just being more comfortable with um, groups of people. Mm -hmm. I usually lose my voice, um, just just kind of get stuck. Mm. And I feel like I'm losing like train of thought. And uh, by constant practice of uh, like listening to women and uh, like guiding their conversations, um, like I feel that I'm exercising this muscle of uh, being able to connect um, to more than one person at mm-hmm. a time. So this is uh, like an active habit that I'm working on. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm happy to hear that. And so thank you for the opportunity you're to practice oh, our, that. Our, it's, our, it's our pleasure. Um, well, speaking of which, you've already kind of referenced both of these, um, this year, uh, you became involved with us in a different way. Um, so in the past you've been kind of a, a recipient, if you will, right. Of mm-hmm. what Junto does. And now you are a part of the giving and you're an active mentor with one of our companies. And, uh, as you mentioned, you've taken on a role, um, in the Junto women leadership as being, an, uh, one of our facilitators. What are, besides what you just shared, what are you learning from these experiences? So I must share as um, a women leadership circle facilitator, it's even harder than I thought because a lot of women in um, uh, Junta Women are like younger uh, generation. Uh, like they are, maybe I'm a millennial close. So it's like millennials and um, above or beyond younger. And uh, it's actually almost terrifying how emotionally intelligent, just freakishly smart these women are. And they are just like bright eyed, amazing humans. And uh, here I am having, I mean, I have a role there, but like they just give. And uh, it's... um, on one hand, it's amazing experience, but then I'm like, what's my role? Mm. They already know everything. <laughs> so um, I'm just leaning more into, I guess, my fears there. Mm-hmm. So as a facilitator, I get to practice. Um, and I think that I appreciate it most um, because I'm still part of the circle. And uh, as a mentor, it's interesting, a very different experience you get to think through your own experience and how you can share so that others could apply it. But also it's an interesting experience of understanding what it is that they truly need before they can start solving a problem. So it's just very, um, very deep experience of like analyzing a lot of moving parts and what's important. 
And I think that it um, also resonates with me because you first relieve your real experience and uh, think about how you can um, articulate it to um, the company that you mentor. And then um, as observing how they apply it, you just analyze it and take it back into like your own experience. So it's uh, it's very weird, interesting thing. And mm. again, like I feel that I learn more from it than mm. the company I'm mentoring. Yeah. So let's go back to the black box acting. So a black box acting and a lot of other, I would say, hobbies um, turned up in my life because, again, I like to try new things. Mm-hmm. And uh, although I would like to have a hobby that I'm going to practice um, always, I haven't arrived at that hobby yet. Um, I think I pick up a hobby, I try it. And then I learned something th- from this. And uh, usually I come back to it a while um, um, after. But uh, in the interim, I just like like to take something out of it and just drop it. Mm-hmm. So the black box acting was uh, just an experiment and, you know, just pushing myself in like weird new direction. And uh, I think acting in general, like I didn't, I wasn't on stage. Um, I mean, I wasn't on the real stage, mm-hmm. but uh, that that was just like a cool experience of connecting to your deep emotional self. It's almost a therapy. Now, one of your other hobbies, I don't know how intensive a hobby, but I'm, I'm aware of it. So I want to dive a little bit deeper, um, is snowboarding. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, I've always been able to picture you snowboarding. Like it just seems natural and I, and I can't explain that, but- Tell us about how much of a hobby snowboarding really is for you. So it's funny because I I remember every time I was going on a snowboarding trip, which was quite often. Yes, I would so travel is. like every, I think, um, two to three to four weeks, like over the weekend, I will just do a run to Utah or Colorado. Like you would walk in as I am rolling in or out with my big snowboard. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, afraid that I'm giving off this impression that I'm a snowbody who does snowbody that doesn't do anything. So that hobby is um, interesting because it's very physical. I don't know how much I'm going to participate in it this year, uh, simply because of other developments in my life. But it's being one with the mountain and the nature and also... So this is a weird hobby that is physically intense Mm -hmm. and then you stop for some time and then you go back and your body remembers and uh, it is an amazing feeling. Again, I'm not like a triple black diamond person, but Mm -hmm. I do enjoy like the blues and some blacks. So just being able to live, forget, come back and your body just miraculously remembers and builds on this i i I just like love that Mm. uh, sensation in my body so what you're getting at is this concept uh, known as muscle memory right where your your body remembers it your muscles remember it and you kind of alluded to this earlier with respect to non-physical activities Mm -hmm. so it sounds like that's something that's meaningful to you like this idea of 
building these habits, either consciously or unconsciously, mm -hmm. to build these muscles and exercise these muscles and the memory. Yeah. Raman, you always put it in like better words than I could ever put. So yeah, I uh, I do enjoy, I think, building habits and building memories yeah. that you can um, go back to and uh, just like utilize whenever you want. Those connections yeah. are important. So let's go um, further on the black box acting. Um, is there a methodology to it? Like does black box actually refer to a process? So I don't remember how they break down black box, uh -huh. but it is based on uh, this Russian method. Um, I think Stanislavski method. That's the um, that's the name of the person who created the method, mm -hmm. and that is for actors to assess their like true emotions in the moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, then attach yourself to the kernel of truth, and then man, like bend and mend your emotion, right? I mean, I don't remember the specifics, but uh, it's very powerful because what you are asked to do is to like look internally and then verbalize what emotion you are experiencing in the moment. And then you're building on that. And I haven't, I think I've done just maybe one level or maybe two. Then you are asked to manufacture an emotion inside of yourself hmm. so that you could act it, right? And uh, that's, you know, a level, like level above. Why I wanted to do this is to assess my emotions um, more freely, I mm -hmm. guess. So the method is... Uh, to observe like what you are doing and name that emotion and being able to call that emotion uh, like frequently and observe the change from, you know, I'm sad to I am happy, I'm joyful. Like that emotion changes every second. Right. And uh, like this method allows you to just like call them out like hmm. this. Um, I can read up more about this. Well, I'm fascinated by it because it has so much overlap and parallel aspects to building mm -hmm. self-awareness, which is the foundation of emotional intelligence. I didn't connect the two until right now, actually. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of connection there. So you said earlier that being in groups of four or more has been a challenge for you and you're leaning into it through mm -hmm. at least Punta Women and perhaps other places too. When you do that, are you exercising any of these acting techniques or tactics? Oh, Raman, you know how to dig deep. I didn't think of this at all. Um, all I know is that there is a fear and I want to confront it. And uh, I'm not a... I can put something on pause, but I don't run away. So, um, again, like I'm just confronting this fear. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it will ever go away. But uh, like I just, I just want to be, I guess, a better self. So, mm -hmm. I there's another thing which I think we discussed uh, previously. Um, it's a book called uh, "How Emotions Are Made." I, I think we spoke about yeah, it, yeah. and that's uh, also uh, like a book that was uh, very meaningful to me, just mm -hmm. to understand that knowing how an emotion is called. And understanding all of the makings of the emotion, 
changes your perspective and that like shapes your, I mean, shapes you, right? So the more emotions you can name and experience, I mean, the richer you will become as a person. So the ability to name an emotion, experience an emotion, and also identify it in the moment ultimately builds a better self. So I, I think it's huge. So are you working on any other habits right now that you haven't mentioned yet? Discipline. Yeah. Before Junto, I've uh, been to, through therapy, uh, which I enjoyed, but I went through therapy because of being in a very kind of difficult, dark, hard spot. Mm-hmm. And then I stopped, um, probably for good reason, because you need to stop at some point. And then it just occurred to me that I want to go back because uh, I have a foundation and I want to build upon it. And when I went back to therapy, she, um, uh, Marianne, suggested that I need to build in more routines in my life because I'm not necessarily a very routine person. Got it. Um, I'm adventurous. I'm open again. And I love it about myself. But uh, so I'm building routines. And it's interesting because on one hand, it's a little bit boring, but then uh, I'm kind of early on on this journey. Like I'm learning something from this. There is a pleasure in the routine as long as you know that this is not a routine for the sake of a routine. So when I'm further on on this habit, I'll let you know more. So this resonates with me pretty significantly because I too naturally am adventurous, open-minded. I love variety. I have to be always doing different things, mm-hmm. which has both is a bless is both a blessing and a curse, uh, not just for me, but for also the people around me. And about six or seven years ago, I started working actively on a morning routine. And again, it wasn't for the sake of a routine. It was more for me to be able to build discipline with certain things that were important for my own growth and development. And it keeps getting stronger, 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 and stronger. And I didn't talk about it, I don't think, when you guys were in the program, but now I actively talk about it in Junto. And we have very intentional conversations about morning routines and the power that they have Mm -hmm. for the rest of our days and then subsequently the week Mm -hmm. and month, right? And then secondly, I've been very recently this year, been building a routine of how I uh, travel locally. And okay. mostly, uh, mostly via bicycle, but it's now turning into just that a habit and a routine mm-hmm. that despite how cold it is, it's becoming fairly natural. Wow. This is really amazing. Yeah. So, uh, I appreciate the power of that and you do starting that process. So let's move into appreciations as we wrap up. Um, just like we open up with the emotion wheel, how we open up punto sessions, we close with appreciations. Would you like to go first or you want me to? I I want you to be second because uh, it's probably going to be amazing. And uh, it's always good to end on Raman note. I am, I want to say grateful, but we decided that that's not the, that's not the word. I'm calm, but also, so I think I'm slightly stuck right now, but I, I do appreciate the challenge. Uh, Raman, like you always challenge me and uh, I want to lean into that more. 
I don't think I always have the like the capital, uh, like the emotional capital to do that. But I really appreciate you um, giving me this opportunity to challenge myself. Like this is huge for me. So mm. thank you. You're welcome. I appreciate your way with words. As someone who obviously English is not your native language, right? It's a second language and your accent is evident. But it, as someone who has dealt with a lot of people in my life for whom English is not their native language, um, because A, I myself am a child of immigrants and B, I've been in a highly diverse city around a lot of people, right? Just like all of us. You're near the top of the people that I've come across in terms of your ability to not only articulate yourself so effectively with the English language, but also your ability to weave in idioms and phrases that, in my experience, many people have struggled with, kind of doing naturally. And then in addition to that is the fact that you don't stop very often to have to think about what you're going to say. It comes out very naturally, like there's a smooth delivery. And then finally is you don't do like retakes. Here, I mean, we're and we're in an environment where we can do that. We can get away with it really mm -hmm. easily. But you just you would answer something, you would follow through with your thought, and it was concise and crisp. And I've mentally made note of maybe three or four one-liners that are just terrific that we'll probably end up using to help promote this podcast. So it's a really long way of my describing my appreciation for your way with words. I am completely surprised to hear this, Raman. <laughs> wow, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for being on the podcast and uh, appreciate you being here. Thank you for this hun today. Our next guest today is Kevin McShane. Kevin is the Chief Revenue Officer at Affinitive, a Chicago-based company. He's a seasoned sales executive who has run sales and revenue operations for a number of technology and software companies and has had several successful exits under his belt. Kevin has developed a systematic way for companies to build and scale their revenue teams, the sales, marketing, and customer support units. That systematic way he's actually codified into something called a playbook. He's brought that playbook into Junto as a mentor and as an instructor for the last couple of years. And in 2020, he's going to be teaching a masterclass for us on how to build and scale a revenue organization. He's got a fascinating background with a little brush with fame as a collegiate athlete, which you'll hear about in our conversation. And he's a high energy, passionate professional who has been a big advocate for Junto. So Kevin, it's awesome having you here on Flourishing Together. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, we're going to kick things off with uh, our emotion wheel check-in. And uh, I know it's something that you're fairly new to, so uh, I'll give you the choice of whether you'd like to go first or whether you want me to go first. I'll go first. Let's start out with joy, move on to optimistic, and then move thirdly into enthusiastic. Nice. A lot of positive energy there which doesn't surprise me. I'm feeling uh, very appreciative, very nostalgic, a little tender. Uh, so quite a bit in the 
in the love category and also a little playful and um and cheerful and proud especially given that story that i just told for you. sure uh, i don't blame dog. you all right so i usually begin kevin with this question um what is your first recollection of leadership but I'm going to change things up a little bit with you um, only because of something that I, that I know about you. And you've taught this class for us a couple of times on building a sales team and you open it up. Typically, you, you've opened it up both times with the story of what you learned about leadership from your college years. And I will let you pick it up from there. I'll date myself. In 1986... I was lucky enough to, as a student athlete in high school, to receive a scholarship. And I found myself in August at the University of Notre Dame on their football team. In 19, through 1981, through 19, the prior year, 1985, Notre Dame under uh, another coach was 30 wins and 26 losses. At the end of that 85 season, the university parted ways with that coach and hired a young fellow by the name of Lou Holtz from the University of Minnesota. So the recruiting class that I came in to Notre Dame with in August of 1986 was Coach Holtz's first recruiting class. So he was a brand new coach. So he essentially inherited uh, an underperformer across the, in that category, in the division one uh, football market. And Notre Dame, as I mentioned, was at best a 500 team, heavy morale problems, um, discipline problems, and it resulted in very poor performance on the field. So coach Holtz walked into a mess and I was a 18 year old freshman at the time. So I had a front row seat to great leadership in the fall of 1986 and into the winter of 1987. And within three short years, Coach Holtz had turned around the one of the worst performers in the NCAA Division I to, in 1988, the national championship team. During my four years, 1986, and my senior year, 1989, Notre Dame was 37 and 11 had won the national championship. I had a front row seat to great leadership. And at one point during that, those years, it dawned on me, I realized that I was seeing great leadership, someone who was coming in and changing the culture in building something from scratch. And I didn't, I couldn't put my finger on it, but at that time I knew that I wanted to get into that business, not coaching, not athletics, but get in the business of leadership. And if there was any one experience in my entire, in my entire life and career, it was those four years as a member of Lou Holtz's team at the University of Notre Dame. When I reflect back on that time, there are really three things that I took away looking at what Coach Holtz did in this huge turnaround. So the first thing, when I think back on it, was culture. Uh, the, the team that he inherited in 1986 had 
morale problems. And it was very much a me first before the team. And one of the very first things he anchored on was getting the right people on the team and developing the people that he inherited. But it started with culture. And the culture was putting the team first over your own personal goals and objectives. And when you think about a a sports team, whether it's a basketball, volleyball, or football, there are in football 120, 130 people that came from high school, um, five-star athletes, um, stars within their own high school team, and playing time as a premium. And he was Coach Holtz was a master at building a culture of putting the team first before your own personal goals and objectives. Number one. The second thing that I noticed during those years is he had an amazing attention to detail. He wasn't high level. He wasn't 30,000 foot, but he really had command and control of the entire organization, whether that's developing the playbook, that's how practice ran, that's how uh, the people in the office were interacting, it's how we treated each other, but it, it was this myopic focus on attention to detail. And the third was fundamentals. In the football analogy, it's blocking and tackling. Uh, And, you know, people would come up to Coach Schultz at times and say, why, Lou, are you so preoccupied about how the team lines up in the huddle or how they take the field or depart from the field? And he said, if we're undisciplined as a team on the sidelines or in the huddle, then we're going to be undisciplined when the game starts on the field. So it was that attention to fundamentals, which when I reflect back on that time, the applicability to business and leading a sales organization, culture, attention to detail, and fundamentals are critical building blocks to building a best-in-class organization. Love it. So you, you've always struck me, uh, ever since I've seen you in action in our mentoring sessions, you've struck me as someone who appreciates and values the power of mentorship from both sides. And I, you know, that comes out just as you share this story about Coach Holtz. Um, but I'd love to hear that if this is the case, that you do appreciate the power of it and value um, it from both sides, where does it come from, first of all, um, that you can trace it to? And then secondly, What have you learned in your career about mentorship? So when I think of mentorship, I've been very blessed in my own career, especially early on, where people made an investment in me, in my own career. And I think of some of the companies and startups that I've been a part of and said to me, if you're willing to challenge yourself, I'm willing to help your in your own career development. I've been very blessed, very lucky with some extraordinary mentors. I, for one quick example, uh, it was a classmate from the Kellogg School of Management, and he took me under his wing. Remarkable person, remarkable business leader, and it really helped me at a point in my career to go to the next level. So when I think about kind of my passion about mentorship, it's reciprocity. Reciprocity is a key component where I do want, at this point, I do want to be able to give back in helping others, developing 
sales leaders, developing founders, uh, in helping people achieve their goals and objectives. As much as you put into it, as much as you get out of it. It's one of the proudest things that I experience is hearing that over and over again from the dozens of mentors that we've had over the years, seeing that consistency. And I'd love to say that it's because of where it's happening, but in truth, I think it's because of who they are, right? I think it's people who who appreciate the, the value of not only thinking, talking, and sharing, but also listening, internalizing, reflecting, and seeing that, yeah, it does go both ways. It sure does. You learn as much, and that's why one of the things I just love about the Junto tribe is as a mentor or teaching a class, I'm learning just as much as the person across the desk or the table. That's to me, you know, I walk away with things that I've learned that particular day from that person during the class or during our conversation. Right. But as I noted, that can only happen if you're listening. My experience with mentorship is there are some people who believe that mentorship is if I'm the the mentor that I'm talking at the mentee. And my job is to give advice and share experiences. And, but as you know, there's a lot of questions that get asked. Uh, there are other people in the room. So you get to hear different perspectives, different experiences. And that's the key is the listening. So before you took your current job, you and I had had coffee and uh, you were debating what your next step might be. And you were even considering taking some time off. And to provide some background, you have been a part of a number of really terrific successes, success stories lately with companies, a number of companies that have had good exits. And, um, and for those who aren't as, you know, as familiar with that, that language, uh, companies that have been sold, um, I don't know if, if I remember correctly, maybe one company that went public, I don't recall. Um, so companies that, um, where you were not only instrumental in getting them to that point, but perhaps you may have even shared in some of the, um, financial outcomes of that. So you actually had the ability also to take some time off. And so I remember us having this conversation in our office and you weren't quite sure, like, do I get back in the game? Do I go hardcore or do I take some time off and, you know, do some other things? And you obviously didn't decide to take time off uh, because I think it was only a few weeks after that is when you took your, your current gig. So I'm curious, why didn't you? And kind of a, a related question is what drives and motivates Kevin? I love building and scaling organizations. So let, let's go back, you know, really back to, you know, my experience under Lou Holtz, the, the building and scaling an organization, inheriting an underperformer, building, scaling, putting in the right culture, the right people, the right processes, the right methodology. That's the fun part. So it's a balance between looking at a business that has tremendous amount of opportunity, but that's not the fun part. The fun part is if it's an extremely well-run organization and it's just more of a maintaining job, that's not all that exciting for me. I love the opportunity within a business where they have some remarkable advantages But there's something going on where there's some headwind hitting that windshield of the business. Competition, the game, the market has changed, revenue's not growing 
as fast or as quickly as the, the CEO and the board would like it to grow. And that combination to me is really exciting. It's interesting when you think of, at least in my own experience with startups, that the, the founders invented a, a product. They invented some innovation and they went to market with it. And usually within the first couple of years, they're growing because it, they're a first entrant perhaps in the market. And then there's competition, right? There's the me too. Other companies, competitors come into the market. And then you, sometime around that fourth year, fifth year, the founders start to realize their growth is starting to flatten. They may have investors, they may have a board, and they're getting more and more impatient around growth. So that's always a good juncture for somebody like me to come in and the sales chief, the revenue chief, partner with the CEO and put the company back on a growth trajectory. Uh, that's what happened in 2018. Classic startup example, high growth early on. They started to flatten competition and the founders really just didn't have great answers on how to restore growth. By putting in a proven playbook across sales, marketing, and customer success, really putting in metrics on accountability, putting in a methodology around those three disciplines, sales, marketing, customer success, that starts to begin to change the game and the trajectory of revenue and profit. So you talk about headwinds and uh, challenges. Uh, is that the competitor in you? Like the fact that you like to be in a place where there you are running into something. And even though it's not like competition, such as what you face on the football field, it's you're still trying to score. You're still trying to, you know, get more points. Where does that drive come from? Is, is that the competitor in you? Is that the athlete in you? What do you think? I love competition, right? I love competition. To me, it's, it's energy. But, you know, when I think about what I'm passionate about, what I really enjoy every single day that, that gets me out of bed and excited to attack the day, is mentorship with the next, what I'd call the next generation of sales leaders, where these are people who are managing a team, sales team, a marketing team, customer success, could be a hunting team, it could be an inside sales team, and they just need the right leadership. And that's not necessarily giving them the playbook, but it's working with them very collaboratively, helping, putting them on a roadmap. So they get more and more successful in helping those people achieve and seeing their teams have success. That to me is really what's really exciting. And absolutely, it's facing down competition, putting in the right strategy, the right game plan. But you know, there's that old phrase I'm, I'm sure you heard of, execution eats strategy for lunch. And when I think about sales as a, a function, I think a lot of companies have the right strategy, but where they break down is they can't execute. And that gets back to kind of what I learned on the playing field at Notre Dame uh, under Lou Holtz. 
is execution is so critically important. So I'm going to shift gears to something personal, but it kind of builds off of our conversation so far. So you've talked about um, what you learned from your uh, football coach. You've talked about what you get from being a mentor. You talked about being mentored by others over the course of your life. And you just shared the power of mentoring and coaching your sales team and others in the company that may not even be on your team. So to me, that dovetails really well with the fact that you're also a father of several children and uh, the oldest of which just went off to college. And if you don't mind, I'd love to, to hear you share some of the thoughts that you shared with him before and since he left home. Because it's a big, you know, as somebody who has two daughters in college, I know how that feels of having, you know, the children kind of leave the proverbial nest. But I'd love to, you know, hear what, you sh- what did you share with him? And um, since he left home and also, you know, what did you share with him about what's ahead for him in life? You won't be surprised, but I pulled uh, a page out of Coach Holtz's book, and it was the three rules. So think about coaching, managing, leading a team of 120 athletes, a pretty large organization with the stakes very high, expectations very high. There were three rules at that team, and these are the three rules that you know that I implemented in my house with my wife and I leading, uh, raising four children. First rule is number one, do the right thing. Number two, do the best you can. And number three, always show people you care. Those three rules, uh, were the bedrock of the team, the sports team I played at, at Notre Dame. And I feel they're simple, but they encompass everything in terms of, of raising, raising children. I think the second thing as my son was going off that, you know, in today's uh, learning world in the real world after college, after uh, school, it's the people that excel are the ones that function so well within the team environment. And that starts when, you know, the, the child is little, but being whatever sport it is, but being part of a team, putting your, you know, the team ahead of yourself and knowing kind of your role in being a, a participant on that team. And so in the real world, whether you go into finance or marketing, sales or operations or IT, day one, you have to be a contributing, productive member of a larger team. So in college, that's a great place to really refine and hone that skill of being a really good team member, whether it's your study team or within the class or your dorm. And that was the other piece of, of advice. Be a really good leader, but be a great member of the team. Whatever your role is, be the best member of that team that you can be. Good stuff. I thought of another question I wanted to ask you, uh, especially since you kind of hammered uh, about Notre Dame several times. Something else that I've noticed about you, and it's like so magically ironic that you work for a company called Affinitive. So uh, you talk very proudly of your time at Notre Dame. You talk very proudly of your time at Kellogg. And I have noticed and observed and been honored to hear you talk very proudly of Junto. 
And so I, I pick up this sense that you you have this element of affinity, very deep affinity and loyalty to these organizations that you are a part of. And I imagine it's the same, it's a similar relationship that you might have with like even your employers, right? I mean, your friends and your family. So I'm curious if that's something that you'd be interested in talking about. Sure. No, I, I definitely think it is. It's And it's part of kind of my upbringing. Um, you mentioned the word loyalty. I, I think I think that's exactly right. I, I think when you join a team or an organization or a group or a community, it's loyalty, right? And give it everything that you have. Um, and the rewards are enormous, right? I think the rewards are absolutely enormous. So I think that that part is, you, you bet. Uh, if I join in something, you're going to get 110%. And there's no quit. There's no day off. And, you know, it's that old phrase. If what you're doing, you love, you don't work a day in your life. And to me, I've been blessed and I've been lucky. Uh, that's been the case for me. Uh, so like we do in most of our uh, sessions, we're going to close out here with uh, a round of appreciations. And uh, as we started, I'll give you a choice of whether you'd like to go first or second. Why don't you go first this time? All right. um, well, I'm going to uh, kind of double down on what we, we just talked about, which is I appreciate your loyalty. I appreciate the identity that you build with yourself, for yourself, through these communities and organizations that um, have been helpful to your life. And I kind of marvel at the idea that, you know, you've been with Junto for maybe not even two years yet. I don't know how long. So to think that you spent four years at uh, at Notre Dame and obviously thousands of hours there, and I imagine just as many, if not more, since then, uh, same at Kellogg, uh, you know, I marvel at the opportunity that we can have have a similar level of loyalty and pride, uh, obviously very fractional way to them. Um, so yeah, I just appreciate the affinity and loyalty that you have. Thank you. I appreciate you opening up your community and the tribe and allowing me to come in as a participant and, and to a greater degree uh, as a mentor and uh, the teaching the class. And I appreciate that. As I mentioned I learn more in one day in a con. I learn just as much uh, from the people that we're, I'm interacting with, or in, during the class, or during the uh, the mentorship program. I learn just as much as they learn. So thank you, and that's what I appreciate. So one of the things that I took away from both conversations uh, with Kevin and with Vera were the things that kind of gave them some inspiration and filled up not only their time, but also seemingly their soul. And it was funny because it coincided with a couple experiences uh, that I had last week. So um, I'm going to start with a little background and then I'll go into uh, those experiences and then you know bring it back to both uh, Vera and Kevin. Uh, one of my beliefs about happiness is that it's a momentary thing and, and fairly fleeting. I have found in my experience that happiness doesn't kind of carry through in some cases, even a day, uh, much less several days, weeks, and months. Um, but instead, when that happens, I've found myself describing it more as joy. Uh, so happiness, in my view, is something that's momentary and fleeting, um, whereas joy kind of builds over time and is more lasting. 
last week, I learned and discovered a new way of looking at both of these um, ideas. First, um, one of our other Junto Women facilitators, uh, Paulina Caprio, who's also been a guest on Flourishing Together, she told me about a challenging client experience that she was having and the reasons um, that it was a challenge for her. And she happened to share it just before she was walking into uh, last week's Junto Women session, remarking that the client engagement would end in two weeks, so she was fairly relieved, uh, and then closed with a big smile and simply said to me as she was about to walk into that Junta Women's session, but this is going to fill my bucket. Then, in an email thread the following day, uh, when we were sharing appreciations for the panelists at that Junta Women's session, one of them, who happens to also be an alumnus of ours, Amy Anderson from Red Caffeine, replied in her email response with, quote, this definitely filled my bucket and then a smiley face. It was interesting because I'd heard that phrase a couple of times before, but I found it fairly coincidental and to some degree even inspiring that it happened in the course of 24 hours about the same conversation or same session that we held. Needless to say, both of them, both of those comments were gratifying for our team to hear as well as for me personally. Uh, after all, little is more uplifting about our work than hearing how people can be touched by it. But as I reflected on the experience, I, I began to give some thought to the idea of this phrase, filling the bucket, and where and how it fit with my personal beliefs about happiness and joy. I ultimately concluded that for me, uh, filling the bucket is doing something that makes us happy in a moment, but in a more lasting way. In other words, it's like a bridge that connects happiness with joy, and it's something that we might be able to experience over the course of a few hours with someone, uh, perhaps a weekend with some friends and family, and especially as we uh, kind of walk into the holiday season. It's different in my view from recharging, which is more about our energy and drive, while filling the bucket is more, in my view, about our heart and soul. So as I reflected on the conversations with Kevin and Vera, I noted that with Kevin, we heard how he derives a lot of joy and value from mentorship and from the affinity that he has with different organizations. Uh, his affiliation with Notre Dame, with the Kellogg School at Northwestern, and even with the Hudo Institute. And with Vera, she talked about hobbies which was really cool because we haven't had many conversations on this podcast about hobbies. But she referred to uh, her acting class. She referred to snowboarding and traveling and uh, also a little bit about Junto as well. And it made me realize that these are the kinds of things that possibly give each of these people joy and may be things that help them fill their buckets. So as we head into the holiday season, uh, we're recording this in early December of uh, 2019. Many of us will be taking some time off, pondering this past year, and looking forward to the uh, following year. And as we do, I hope that many of us will also think about how we do fill our buckets and how we can, but then also, on top of that, how we can help other people fill their buckets. 
you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode. This episode was produced by Dante32.